Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Some stories feel too weird to be true, and this is one of them. In the 1990s, a former Playboy model and somewhat washed-up TV actress decided she would endorse an odd invention. The invention, which had been created by a woman in Sweden, had been intended to act as physical therapy. But that's not exactly what happened. Instead, it became symbolic of a great American trend. I used to do aerobics till I dropped, then I found Thighmaster. Every single time you squeeze Thighmaster, you strengthen and tone right where you need it. Suzanne Summers, who had made a lot of money starring in the sitcom Three's Company, which she had then left amidst considerable conflict, realized the Thighmaster held tremendous potential. So it's easy to squeeze, squeeze your way to shapely hips and thighs. I thought I'd never fit into these jeans again. Thank you, Thighmaster. The potential of the Thighmaster was probably less in its ability to remake your body than in its ability to captivate you. I have to say, I love infomercials. Wendy Willison is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University, Camden. There are now like entire channels devoted to infomercials, and even the shopping channels are just like 24-7 infomercials. So I just I just need to say, like, I really appreciate the the persuasive efforts that these people go to to sell this stuff. The stratospheric sales of the Thighmaster, something like $100 million, was a reflection of a common American belief. You can solve your problems with stuff. We often purchase it with these expectations that then it doesn't deliver. And those expectations, of course, are created by all of the marketing and advertising and persuasion that goes along with selling this thing. Willison is not referring to the Thighmaster in particular when she talks about stuff not working. She's talking about all sorts of stuff, all the crap we buy, which she says reflects a kind of hope. So whether it's a mass-produced collectible that you think is going to be this great investment thing, but it ends up not being so, or it's a gadget that is like a system that promises you this magic, easy transformation to do this particular thing that you need it to do. And then it either breaks down or doesn't do it very well, or it's harder to clean, you know, creates more labor for you. It's those contradictions that I'm really interested in. Willison is the author of Crap, A History of Cheap Stuff in America. And in some sense, Suzanne Summers' ability to sell the Thighmaster wasn't surprising. In the decades leading up to her infomercial, selling was merging more and more with entertainment. So it was inevitable that people who knew how to entertain would ultimately become some of our most effective salespeople. It's a special TV offer from the king of the grill, George Foreman. My lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine with built-in bun warmer delivers great-tasting grilled food in minutes. Best of all, it knocks out the fat. And watch what happens when Cindy invites Grey's Anatomy star Ellen Pompeo to try the evolutionary secret that's kept Cindy's skin looking so youthful for so long. The infomercial has, has kind of brought the world of performative commerce into our homes in a really intimate way. And it did it fairly early on. You know, television, of course, being a new technology in the late 40s and 50s, was a way to deliver not just news and programming, but now like commercial appeals 
to people in, in their homes, you know, in intimate spaces, in kitchens and living rooms. William Papa Bernard created the first infomercial in 1949. TV was new and the half hour slot cost him $270, which helped him sell nearly $9,000 worth of Vitamix mixers. He made the case that what he was selling, it could change your life which is the same sales pitch used for the George Foreman grill or for the Thighmaster. Wollison argues, our lives have not always been suffused with crap. That's actually a pretty modern phenomenon. In the late 1700s, Americans fell in love with costume jewelry, which became a more valuable industry than books or furnaces. But then, in the 1800s, after the War of 1812, folks in Great Britain realized, you know what? Americans love crap, so they shipped it over. And it's stuff that they can't sell. It's too crappy for them to sell <laughs> in their own markets. And hmm. they've been kind of holding on to this stuff throughout the war. And now they're like, oh, we can sell this stuff to the Americans. So it's stuff like textiles whose dyes run or fade, you know, hmm. cheap Chinaware that chips easily or is already cracked. Knives whose metal hasn't been heat treated properly, so, so they're brittle, they don't hold good edges. The point is that they send all this stuff to America and it is sold through urban auctions, it's sold through rural peddlers, it's sold through goods that call themselves cheap goods and variety stores. And so by the 1820s already, there's this huge appetite in America for these low-priced sort of miscellaneous materials. I guess I wonder, even though this stuff might have been junk, how much joy did it bring to people's lives? Like uh, if you've read yeah. Little House on the Prairie, yeah. you might remember Caroline Ingalls had this little shepherdess made out mm -hmm. of like porcelain. And I, everywhere they go, I swear, like they're in the middle of the prairie in Kansas and they're in the Dakotas and yeah. they're in the middle of the blizzard. And, and they've got the shepherdess because I guess it was what she could afford. And because it was what she could afford and it made her house seem kind of fancier to her, it mattered yeah. to her. Yeah. Yeah. It and, seems like these uh, things yeah. matter a lot to people, even if they are inanimate objects and there's no necessarily objective value to them. Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You're totally right. And that's especially the case, I would say, until the end of the 19th century, when people had fewer possessions mm. and they cost more people had less money, and they were more distant from the market. So these goods were inaccessible in a lot of ways. The things that they could get, especially from like the rural peddler, if you're living in the middle of nowhere, they were special and they were important. And I think novelty is a really important part of this story, that it did relieve their boredom. It did give them something nice to look at. The peddler mm -hmm. sold what we call petty luxuries, these Yankee notions like mother of pearl buttons and pieces of ribbon and lace. And if you look at the pictures from the time, you'll see the peddler opening his pack and, and everybody is transfixed yeah. by the peddler and what he's pulling out of his pack. It's like Santa Claus almost. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely the case for a while. And then 
as domestic manufacturers gear up throughout the 19th century and global trade networks really expand, then there are more and more goods coming onto the market that people really don't need and sometimes they don't even want, but they are sold these goods anyway through even more sophisticated forms of marketing and persuasion. Um, you read a little bit about the invention of a whole category of crap, um, collectibles and commemoratives, and 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 how these things that we think of, I mean, they're almost, they're so part of our lives, I never really considered them. But you, you argue they really haven't always existed, at least not as they do now. Right. The the mass-produced collectible is really a product of the mid-20th century. So there were some, you know, people collected stuff before that. And of course, the elite have always collected things. It's been a a status symbol, Mm. you know. In the 19th century, with the proliferation of printed materials, more ordinary average people started collecting things like postcards and trade cards, luggage labels, postage stamps, things like that. So it's not that collecting didn't exist before this, but I'm really talking about the thing that is manufactured specifically to be collected. So there's a little bit of this happening in the late 19th century, the 1880s and 1890s, you have like collectible spoons because Uh cutlery companies in America want to expand their base. Not everybody is rich enough to afford to buy these lavish pieces of, of knives and forks and spoons. Mm-hmm. So they start selling these collectible spoons. So that's like one early example. But the market really gets going in the mid 20th century, where you have you start to have like these collectible plates. The Last Supper plate is one of the first, like in 1949, I think it's advertised. And it's advertised specifically as a collectible. And it's interesting because it's advertised in a magazine geared toward people who collect antiques. And they're trying to say, well, this isn't quite an antique and it's not <laughs> valuable in the, in the way that you're used to, but it won the blue ribbon at the Indiana State Fair in 1948. And it has a gilt striped painting around mm-hmm. this, the edge, you know, all of these markers of sophistication and connoisseurship they're using, they're kind of citing in their advertisement to pique people's interest. And so soon after that, you have like the flourishing of the collectible plate industry. You have Hummel figurines, which GIs started to bring back from Germany. And so those were sold as collectibles. And that's really a generational thing. Like a lot of people don't even know what Hummel figurines are anymore, but they're little German boys and girls like dressed in lederhosen who are carrying baskets and books. They're very like innocent little figurines. Anyway, so people collected those for a very long time. And then, you know, you have precious moments, beanie babies, other collectible plates. So you have this flourishing of all sorts of stuff that is produced specifically to be collected, called collectibles. Um. You know, can you talk a little bit about um, the rise of stores that were almost 
you know, uniquely appealing because what they sold was cheap stuff, like five and 10 Woolworth mm-hmm. kind of stores. I mean, I think some people remember Woolworths. I I remember kind of the real tail end of it. I think I was yeah. there for, you know, I, I remember one before it shut down. Um, but talk a little bit about the rise of these stores in America. Sure. Cheap variety goods stores who, who advertise themselves as like cheap, cheap, cheap. They would put that in their their headlines. We really start to see these cropping up in American cities in the 1820s, like really, really early. People like Woolworth realize that there's a psychological effect that low prices and miscellaneous goods together had on cheap goods. I call this the alchemy of cheap. If you combine variety with low price, you can sell things that otherwise you wouldn't be able to sell. So Woolworth decided to take like really low priced brand new bandanas that he bought for like five cents, put them on the 25 cent counter. And he collected what he called, this is a quote, any old trash from the store that wouldn't sell, (laughs) that couldn't sell. He put it all on the 25 cent counter, advertised that in the newspaper and everything sold out. So other stores across the country started to install these 25 cent counters. And then Woolworths said, well, gosh, if I can do this for just one little counter space, I can do this for a whole store. And so that was really the origin of the five and dime. So you have the mixture of the variety and miscellany with the low prices, and it creates sort of in a brick and mortar form that that treasure chest like effect that the peddler had when he opened up his pack. And so fast forward to today, you can see how dollar stores work that same kind of alchemy where you go into a dollar store, you know, everything's low price. So it's going to be low risk anyway. And because the dollar stores are just a jumble of different goods, and sometimes it's not even organized. And sometimes you'll find one thing stuck here, another thing stuck there. Rather than turning us off, we're actually really intrigued and beguiled by this sort of bizarre in a store. And we go in often thinking we're going to find the one treasure, the one thing that's worth more than a dollar. I'm going to get I'm going to get a good deal and I'm going to find a real treasure in here. Hmm. Hmm. Um, that actually uh, makes me think a little bit about um, maybe partially the inheritor to Woolworth, which is Walmart. Um, yeah. And I uh, talked uh, a few years ago to journalist Charles Fishman, and he has chronicled the rise of Walmart. And he he talked a little bit about why Americans started shopping at Walmart, um, which had these, you know, cheaply made products, uh, appliances, all sorts of things, rather than like supporting main streets in their communities. Um, and uh, here's what he said. Walmart doesn't have a tractor beam. Walmart doesn't show up in town and suddenly everybody sort of automatically starts shopping at Walmart. We did that. Americans did that. We voted with our wallets. And I I thought, you know, that that uh, it really speaks to what you're saying about, you know, there are people trying to convince us of things, but ultimately we're doing this. I mean, I I wonder, are are, are Americans uniquely vulnerable to this sales pitch or this is just a human thing? I wouldn't say Americans are uniquely vulnerable to this, but we are maybe predisposed to it. 
the history that I track in my book is really also a history of America's acceptance of or maybe embrace of a throwaway culture. We want things fast. We want them cheap. We want instant gratification. And I think Walmart is just an outgrowth of that. They're convenient to get to. I can get in my car. I can drive to this big parking lot. I don't have to worry about where to park, which is different than being on Main Street. I can get everything all at the same time when I shop there. I'm promised low prices. So it's it's everything that we want, whereas patronizing the local family-owned hardware store is work. You know, we Mm -hmm. have to go, we have to find a place to park, we have to make a special trip. I can't buy my milk where I'm buying my nuts and bolts. Things are going to be more expensive because those independent stores can't purchase, you know, in big scale, all sorts of things. So he's absolutely right. We have made, we've made these decisions. We're not completely duped or seduced by all of this persuasion. I mean, it helps and it's very effective. But I think it really is important and a really good point to remember that we have agency and we really have created this this world of crap that we live in. (laughs) I mean, we I mean, it's the it's the truth. And it's interesting because people uh, talk now and Walmart was a major was a major mover in this in getting uh, manufacturing to move to China because prices were were lower for labor. Um, But you say this is not the first time that things being made overseas somewhere uh, was complained about, uh, was discussed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Right. The earliest crappy goods, as I said, in the American market came from overseas. At first from Great Britain, Germany, then was making dime store dolls for the U.S. market. From Austria came cheap glassware And eventually, by the 1880s and 1890s, Japan opened itself up to Mm -hmm. global trade. And a lot of those cheap goods then came from Japan. And all of these things involved, as they do today, exploited labor. Because if you're making cheap goods, you can drive down the cost of materials. But, oh, there's a limit to that. But the cost of labor is always very fungible. And so we see that from very early times, from children who are working in Staffordshire Chinaware factories, to Japanese families who had their own small manufactories to make five and dime goods stores to producers today. And I should just say an example of this that I like to give in terms of Japanese goods is if you think about something like the cocktail umbrella. Now, the cocktail umbrella is This is like the little stuff you get like in your drink? Yeah, yeah, that little, so if you imagine that in your mind's eye and think about, you know, you can actually make it work. It's made out of paper that has a decoration on it and little pieces of wood. And it's very cheap, right? You can buy them for a couple of bucks for a pack of 10 or whatever. But to make that kind of thing and a lot of similar items that ended up in dime stores, you could not mechanize that production, So all of that work had to be done by hand. But in order to make the good cheap enough, you had to use those hands like machines. And so the Japanese were very good at creating these household-based small manufactories that produced this kind of stuff. So they would use women's labor and children's labor. And typically the husband managed 
these operations. And so the women and children would usually not get paid anything, but they would be doing very labor intensive things to create these very cheap goods for the American market that were sold in five and dime stores and then eventually were cast away. They show up in our cocktails and then we throw them out. Right, right. Um, And do you think Americans realize that at all or no? Um, They probably don't, but I'm not sure if it would matter if they did. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Wendy Willison. She's the author of Crap, A History of Cheap Stuff in America. She's a professor of history at Rutgers University, Camden. Give me a sense of the environmental impact of, you know, of uh, filling our lives, our houses, uh, those uh, storage places that mm-hmm. we pay for, like with all this, all this stuff. As I mentioned before, like earlier goods were made out of materials that could be recycled or repurposed in some way, wood, textiles, glass, cardboard, and so on. Most of the stuff today, the crappy stuff today, is made out of plastic, or if we're talking about crappy furniture, it's made out of like compressed wood. So those things, they break down much quicker, so we have to replace them more often. And they can't really be repurposed. I mean, think about the the furniture that you buy from Ikea, and if you make one wrong move with that bolt, then your furniture's all wonky. It's hard to move that stuff. I've talked to movers who say, we can maybe move those pieces of furniture once, and that's it. That's sort of their their life Uh, cycle. You know, these are pieces of furniture. It used to be that furniture was handed down from generation to generation. That's not the case anymore. So the point is, all of this stuff has to go somewhere. So it goes in landfills, it swirls in the trash gyres in the ocean that contain trillions of pounds of plastic stuff. And so we pay for crap in many different ways, but environmentally is one of the one of the big ways we pay and we continue to pay. Do you think that our love for crap has like reinvented our lives? I mean, maybe push us to get bigger houses, mm. right? Because if yeah. you care about it, and many people do, yeah. um, you have to accommodate it somehow. Right. And so we have storage units, you know, these new things. Like I said, we pay rent on these little apartments for our stuff. I can't remember the statistic now, but like a majority of Americans' garages are so full that they do not accommodate their cars. They accommodate their stuff. Closets are taken over. Junk drawers are taken over with stuff that that we don't need and that we don't even really want often. And one of the things that I'm keeping my eye on because I'm very interested in this is whether the pandemic's going to change any of this. Whether as we lose our jobs or our income declines, if we're going to spend less on these extraneous things. And also the more time we spend at home, is our crap gonna start driving us more and more crazy? Or on the other hand, are we just gonna kind of hunker down and feel more protected and comforted with the possessions that we do have, even if they are kind of crappy? And so, and I don't know how that's gonna play out and I'm really interested to see what happens as we move forward. 
have have you seen anything in the past few years? I mean, we've seen like the rise of people like Marie Kondo, who's yeah. like, you know, declutter your life, basically, like yeah. simplify it. You'll be a yeah. happier person Tiny if you have just it. really what you need. Um, yeah. But we, we've also seen financial things where we've seen like the, the middle class <clears throat> get hollowed out to a certain yeah. degree. And so maybe I don't know if some of the um, demand for certain kinds of things has dried up. Have we seen any um, movement in the last few years towards that, this sort of lessening of accumulating crap? Marie Kondo's kind of interesting. I I think that as ironic as this might sound, I think you actually have to be more privileged and have more money to lead a more minimal lifestyle. Kind of like the slow food movement. These are things that people of privilege and comfort can afford to do, kind of literally and psychologically. I'm also thinking of like the tiny house movement too. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, but just like buying, say, artisanal jeans, handmade jeans or um, something like that. Yeah, those things would be great if we could all buy really high quality things. But like a pair of nice jeans costs like two or three hundred dollars. People can't afford that. And so this is this is where we're at now is that because of the economy, the only stuff we can really afford to buy is crappy stuff. Mm -hmm. And it becomes kind of circular because a lot of people who are working at places like Walmart or fast food joints are paid only enough so that they can consume and shop at the places they work, you know, selling the crappy goods that kind of keep them in this cycle of what I call exploitation and and degradation in the book. Wendy Willison is the author of Crap, A History of Cheap Stuff in America. She's an associate professor of history at Rutgers University, Camden. Wendy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Tried to save the trees, bought a plastic bag. The bottom fell out of was a piece of crap. Piece of crap! And if you want to tell us about the crap in your life... Give us the backstory, send us a picture. I'm certainly not living a minimalist lifestyle, so I might do some picture taking of my own. Our email address is innovationhub at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at iHubRadio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Caitlin Falds. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. 